Hi everyone, welcome back to the China and the Caribbean podcast. In this episode, I am joined by retired Lieutenant General Charles Hooper, the former director of the U.S. Defense Security Corporation Agency from 2017 until 2020. General Hooper is fluent in Mandarin and has had a truly fascinating career in U.S.-China relations. In the first part of the podcast, we discussed the early days of his experiences in China from the 1980s. Then we discuss some finer aspects of the U.S. foreign weapon sales and security cooperation, and finally we discuss his views on the current state of U.S.-China relations. As usual, I will include links to the various topics discussed in the show notes. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with retired Lieutenant General Charles Hooper. Thank you, General Hooper, for coming on the podcast. Oh well, thank you very much for having me. And I, sh- I should clarify, I'm I'm a Lieutenant General retired. Okay, so I'm no longer on active duty. I'm just a private citizen. So everything I say here is is going to be I'm going to try to be as factual as possible. But it it a lot of it will be my opinion and my opinion only. So I'm going to start in the early days of your career. You were the assistant attaché to China, and then later on, you were the U.S. defense attaché as well. What kindled your early interest in China policy in general, given your military grounding? Well, no, thank you very much for the question. Well, I'll, I'll tell you,、um, uh, when I was a young man, I attended the United States Military Academy at West Point,、um, and in those days, every West Point cadet was required to take two years of、uh, of language. Uh, and uh, and so when I went to select my language in those days, we'd stand at attention, you know, like this, and we'd all stand in line and we'd walk up to. Uh, uh, if you were a freshman, you'd walk up to an upperclassman, so a, a senior cadet,、um, and his job was only to write down what your language selection was and to turn it into the foreign languages department. And so when I got to the front of the line, my intention was to take French. I had studied French in high school. Um, but I looked at the list, and, and French was there. And I told the upperclassman, I said, "Sir, I, I will study French." And he said, "French is very popular; it's full. You need to pick another language." Excuse me. And so I looked at the list, and I saw Chinese on there. Now remember, this is 1975. So in 1975, the United States didn't even have formal diplomatic relations with China. Uh, but I thought it was interesting and something that I'd want to explore, and so I stood at attention and said in my deepest voice, "Sir, I, I request to study Chinese." And he looked up at my face and he looked down at the list and he said, "It's too hard for you. Pick another language." And I was I was very upset by that as a young man, and and he I, I remember thinking he doesn't know me, you know, how can he just look at my face and decide on his own that Chinese the Chinese language was too difficult for me. So to make a long story short, we we、uh, went back and forth a couple more times, and he tried to dissuade me. I stood my ground, and at the end of the day, he relented because there were many people behind me in the line, and we had spent about five minutes arguing about this. And he finally said, "Well, you know, it's your funeral. Go ahead if you want to. You'll fail, but go ahead and study Chinese." Well, as it turned out,、um, I went to West Point to be an engineer, and I ended up getting a degree in East Asian Studies. Um, because I love the Chinese language, I, I took to it. I 
Uh, it was relatively easy for me, difficult for some, but easy for me. Uh, and then I took a lot of courses that accompanied my language training. Uh, the first A I got in college, the first A uh, was in a course called Politics and Government in China. And the professor was a wonderful man, one of those professors who, you know, takes an interest in a student. And, and uh, he said, you know, you might actually have a talent for this. And so he encouraged me and I ended up getting my degree in East Asian studies. And that's how I got my beginning. And what was your experiences like, you know, being so early days in China as the assistant army attache? Well, it was it was a fascinating experience. And, and uh, I should say before I showed up to be an assistant attache, I had had an opportunity after uh, after, of course, after I graduated and after I had been in the army for a while, the army sent me to Harvard University first. Uh, and then the army sent me to study in China in the late 80s. Uh, I studied as a student in China and then went back in, in 1995 uh, to China to be the assistant attache. And I would tell you, it was a fascinating experience. It was right at the uh, the beginnings of the economic explosion in China, the the explosion of, of business in China. And I mean, there were, I, I, I feel as if um, when I think of those times, I had a front row center court seats to watch the rise of China. And I'll, I'll tell you a couple of stories that one of them, one of them that sticks out, two that stick out in my mind. Uh, the first one was, I will never forget, uh, that was in the early days of the internet. It's hard to believe now, but in those, in 1995, the internet was relatively new. Um, and I remember people were registering for the internet so fast that the government actually suspended registration uh, uh, for internet accounts uh, and requested that everyone show up and register with the Ministry of Public Security um, before acquiring, before signing up for service with an ISP, an internet service, service provider. And I'll never forget. So in, in my neighborhood in Beijing, we most of the American diplomats in those days lived in the eastern quadrant of Beijing. And, and so being a, being a diplomat, and that's my job, I was interested. So Saturday morning, I went to the registration site to see what would happen. And so got to the registration site early. There are two women who had set up these uh, tables, these wooden tables. And on the tables, okay, and I'm going to go back. You're a young man. There were carbon paper forms on the table, right? Big stacks of carbon paper forms and pencils, you know. And these two ladies were sitting at sitting at the desk, uh, ready to register the people that came up to to uh, apply for internet service. I would tell you that by nine in the morning, by my estimate, there were ten thousand people there. Okay, and and that told me two things. It told me number one, the government had vastly underestimated the number of people who actually had personal computers. Remember, this is 1995. And number two, they had underestimated the number of people who had the disposable income to pay for Internet service. Um, and, and so, of course, you know, I mean, the, 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 two young, the two women at the tables were almost automatically overwhelmed. They couldn't possibly, with these carbon paper forms, keep up. And I, and I look at that as the beginnings of the creation of what has become known as the Great firewall of China. It really was a wake-up call for the, uh, for the government. One of the second stories that, that, uh, that I remember that kind of is a symbol of, of what was going on in China in those days was I was on the school board of the international school there. Both my daughters uh, were in the international school there, and I was on the school board. 
And uh, I sat on the school board with the uh, treasurer for a very well-known uh, cellular phone electronics company. And I won't say which one, I don't want to call it out, but, but uh, very, very, very well-known. Um, and at the time they were producing cell phones in China for export. Okay. And I remember we were sitting together on the, on the, on the, uh, on the board and just having a conversation. And I said, how's business, you know, and he said, well, business is really good, but you know, he said, uh, imagine how business would explode if there was a domestic Chinese market for cell phones. Now, remember, this is 1995. And in those days, the military and the government control most of the frequency bands. And so not, not a lot of people in China had a cell phone in those days. Uh, well, uh, about a few months after that, um, the, the government, the, the Chinese government and the military released huge blocks of frequency bands, those frequency bands necessary for cellular communication. And of course, the rest is history, okay? All of a sudden that company had an enormous uh, domestic market in China for cell phones. And of course, you know, I, I asked him subsequently how business was and, and all he would do was smile at me, of course, because business just exploded. So this is what things were like in those days. And I, I remember, you know, going back to the eighties when I was a student, there was one copper wire phone, probably for every 10, 11,000 people in China, okay? By the time I left in my second tour in 2009, there was better cell phone coverage in the desert in China than in some places in the United States. That's how rapidly the infrastructure. So it was a fascinating time to be there. Uh, contentious race relationship sometimes between the United States and China. Uh, that combination of cooperation in some areas, but competition and rivalry in others. And, and uh, I enjoyed every minute of it and, uh, and, and enjoyed watching history unfold before my eyes. I'm curious about the mechanics of your assistant attache appointment. Were you chosen outright or did you have to go through a process of application and interviews and selection? Okay. Well, yeah. So what happened was I go and let's go back a little bit to the time between the time I graduated from West Point and and so what what happened during that time is I graduated from West Point and I was I was made an infantryman, so a fighting soldier. Um, I had went I went to airborne school. I went to Ranger or Commando school, um, and I served in an infantry unit. And so I did that time for three or four or five years. And then once I had completed that particular phase of my career, I had a couple of options. I could go teach at West Point or I could uh, focus on another specialty. And, and I remember my, uh, my Chinese instructor from West Point at that time. And remember, most of the professors at West Point are Army officers. And so we were serving together in Hawaii at that time. And he said, hey, he said, the Army is starting this program where they will train uh, China specialists, China soldier diplomats. Um, to to understand China, analyze China, and and perhaps be assigned in in China. And once again, remember this is the early 1980s. And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. And he said they'll send you to grad school. And and so uh, uh, I applied for the program and I was accepted. And so they sent me to Chinese uh, language refresher training. And then uh, they gave me a list of schools to apply to. And I applied to Harvard University and was accepted. And so I got my master's degree there at Harvard University, studying principally looking at U.S.-China relations and foreign policy and that type of thing. And this is what all foreign area officers do. Uh, depending on what area you go to, you may go to 
uh, different schools. So for example, if you're a, an expert in uh, Latin American affairs, you might go to the University of Texas. If you're a specialist in European affairs, you might go to Columbia University grad school or, or um, excuse me, or one of those. In my particular case, I, I had uh, a choice of Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Berkeley, and Michigan, and I, I chose to go to Harvard. And so uh, I finished that. And then after you finish your graduate school as a foreign area officer, you are, you were in those days, you were sent to uh, some type of education in the region. Um, so to give you an opportunity to use your language in the region, firsthand study of the culture and experience with the culture and the people uh, and an opportunity to travel around. And so I spent a couple of months with the, the British in those days, Hong Kong was still a British possession. And I spent uh, uh, a few months with British forces in Hong Kong. They had a language school there. And then I spent the remaining year and a half, almost two years, just traveling around China. So, I mean, I went everywhere. I, I planes, uh, planes, boats, camels, uh, bicycles. Um, you know, I, I wonderful experiences. I did everything from pulling fishing nets on the South China coast to uh, learn how to help plant rice to, you know, having conversations with some of the older cadres there, some of the older cadres there in, uh, 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 that had marched with Mao and had participated in the Cultural Revolution. So it was really a wonderful experience, the objective of which, and traveled all over China, the objective was of which was uh, when I came back from that experience, when I came back from that experience, I would have a well-rounded perspective that would that would help me to provide critical and firsthand knowledge and analysis about not only the Chinese military but the evolving society in China and the and the implications for relations with the United States. So that's what FAOs do. That was a China FAO in my case, but we have we have foreign area officers that specialize in Sub-Saharan Africa, Eurasia. Uh, Europe, Eurasia, South Asia, uh, Northeast Asia, that's Korea and Japan, and Southeast Asia and Oceania, as well as Latin America. So each of those uh, FAOs, each of those clusters of FAOs has a very similar experience to mine. Uh, than, to mine. We are the soldier statesmen of the military, so we serve as attaches and diplomatic assignments. I had four diplomatic assignments. Um, and when we come back from there, we serve in, as you know from my bio, I served in the office of the Secretary of Defense, um, and I and I and I was in charge of security assistance in the Pacific, in Africa, and finally for the world in my last job. So there's this critique often used against the DoD, where there's an understanding that it's a limitation or failure. To, of the DOD to understand the social politics of the countries they're operating. And from that perspective, I can see why the FAO program was, you know, a, a innovation of DOD. But why exactly was the FAO system separated from the normal FSOs at state? Okay, well, no, and that's a very good question. And I would tell you, first of all, I, I have to take a little bit issue about the way you frame the question. I don't think everything was a failure. And, and while certainly um, there have been instances where a bit more cultural understanding on the part of Americans might have been helpful, I think uh, the situation is much better now than it was. And, and in my experience, uh, we do a fairly credible job overseas. Okay, now to your question. Um, 
what is the difference kind of why why do we have soldier statesmen as well as foreign service officers and that's that's a very good question um and i would answer it by saying uh we have these two different institutions okay uh, in countries and as you well know in some countries um so you have a foreign ministry like organization and you have a military institutional organization um both of these organizations have their own institutional cultures, their own histories. And as you well know, there are some countries, and I'm not advocating this, um, but there are some countries where the military as an institution is the preeminent institution in that country. They may have a foreign ministry, uh, but for many historical reasons and other reasons, the military is the dominant institution in that country. Um, and the reason we train soldiers diplomats is to serve as liaison and representatives to these military institutions. Okay. Um, there is an affinity between military organizations. They, even, even if they are in different countries, they share a certain language and a certain culture. Uh, and perhaps our foreign service officers are wonderful. Like I said, I did four diplomatic assignments. Nobody has more respect for our state department colleagues than I do. Okay. But sometimes uh, a soldier is more willing to engage with another soldier, perhaps, than a diplomat in uniform. There's a kinship there, okay? And so I see our soldier diplomats and our foreign service, our FAOs and our foreign service officers as complementary teammates who work together to ensure that the United States has a full spectrum capability to engage with our partners across their relevant institutions and their most dominant institutions. And so, for example, as an attache, I worked very closely with my State Department colleagues. We would exchange information because I understood how armies run, in this case, the People's Liberation Army in China. I understood how armies run. I understood what was important to armies. I understood the hierarchy um, and that you talk to a general different than even you talk to how you talk to a colonel and these types of and so I saw myself very much as a military ambassador to my own government to ensure that when we provided best, best advice to our national leadership through the ambassador, it was a comprehensive view of best advice and not just diplomatic or military. Do you think that the FAO program has evolved or expanded as much as it should have been by now? I think so. I think it has. I've seen it. I've seen it uh, uh, evolve uh, in a very positive direction, um, and I would I would say that it's it's finally culminating and reaching its maximum ability. Although it can always improve uh, to contribute to to the to our national security. Um, when we began the FAO program, um, FAOs would often have to. Um, move between their combat specialties and their FAO specialty, back and forth and back and forth. And, and while, while this was not a particularly efficient way to have a career field, um, because you end up, if you have to bounce between, for example, being uh, an infantry, excuse me, being an infantryman and being a soldier diplomat, what you end up with is a journeyman who does both, both reasonably well, but nothing particularly well. And so what we did around the time I was a, a colonel or a lieutenant colonel was um, we would train our officers their first five or six or seven years in their combat specialty. And then we would have a very rigorous selection process 
to determine which officers had the, the ability and the temperament to become FAOs and soldier diplomats. And then for the rest of their careers, they would train as soldier diplomats, okay? So that they would develop a body of experiences and expertise um, that would continue to grow with each successive promotion, culminating in their ability as a colonel or as a general officer to be the defense attache to Beijing or Moscow or Paris uh, or Kingston, okay, uh, for that matter. No, truly, truly, or Kingston or Santo Domingo or Port-au-Prince. Um, so, so that's the way we approached it. I think this is a more, much more efficient and effective way to do it because you end up with a resource that has, by the time they reach the rank of colonel uh, at 20 years or so, They've served in a number of diplomatic assignments. They've served as an advisor to a senior combat commander. Um, and they've developed a set of skills, to your point, that better help them to describe and explain uh, why a country is doing what it's doing. And I like to say, explain how others, seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Why are they doing that? Well, sir, they're doing that because here's their history. Here's their culture. Here's how they view the world. And that is the source of their strategic behaviors. And correspondingly, to your point, that allows the United States to craft an engagement strategy and a diplomatic strategy that takes into account an understanding of how their counterparts around the world view the world um, so, that they, so that we may accommodate our strategy and our engagement to address, not necessarily agree, but address their view of the world. Yeah, and you were the first failed director of the DSCA, which we yes. will definitely get to in this conversation. But before that, you were the U.S. defense attaché to China in 2007 to 2009. And to put it mildly, that was a flashpoint period in U.S.-China relations. So I guess, how was, how was that experience being in China in that post at that time? Okay, very no, very very good question. It was it was a very very busy time period for a number of reasons and I'll tell you why. There were three major events took place, two of which one internal, uh but two of which were external. The first one was if you recall that was during the time of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Uh so very exciting time to be in Beijing as as the Chinese government put forth a a huge effort to ensure that they were seen in a favorable light by the rest of the world. Huge infrastructure uh, investments uh, all over the country to ensure that they were ready for an influx of visitors for the Olympic Games in 2008. Um, and I was able, I was there for that, you know, and so we had numerous visitors and we were involved in helping to support the U.S. at the embassy, helping to support the U.S. Olympic team. Both President Bush's came, Dr. Kissinger came. So it was a fairly, a fairly large event for China uh, and a fairly large event for the world. And, and so I had the opportunity to be the senior military representative during that time. Um, equally, if not more important, I was there uh, during, I was a defense attache during the devastating 2008 earthquakes in Sichuan in central China. And, and I was able to coordinate as the senior military representative, I was um, one of the chief coordinators for the delivery of relief supplies by the United States government, the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, to assist 
uh, the unfortunate victims of that tragedy in Sichuan in central China. Um, so it was, I'm very proud of the role I played in, in, uh, in helping to provide that relief and, and that it provided, if ever so briefly, an opportunity for the United States and China to cooperate uh, to address a common humanitarian crisis uh, there in China. So I, I look upon that as a high point of my, uh, of my tenure as defense attaché to Beijing. The third, um, the third event that took place is not one of particular historical significance to those outside of the diplomatic community, but the United States moved from uh, its old embassy in the old part of, uh, of central Beijing to a new purpose-built embassy a little bit further out in the suburbs. And, and that was a pretty interesting historical note. I, I'll tell you that um, um, because the United States uh, recognized China relatively late, 1980, 1979, 1980. By the time uh, we got around to picking an embassy, there wasn't a whole lot left in central Beijing. Okay? And so we had this embassy that was split between three old buildings. In fact, the American chancellery was the old Pakistani embassy before they built their new embassy. You know? And so we had these old buildings. And, but I tell you what, they had a lot of character. And, and of course, there was a lot of history in those buildings. That's where, you know, the first President Bush 41, when he was appointed as the first envoy to China, that's where he hung his hat. And, and so these old buildings had a lot of character. That was the, the first post-war, post-World post War II, post-recognition uh, home, for example, of the defense attache office. And I had become familiar with that office and that location from my time as a young captain, as a student in the 80s, as an assistant attache in the 90s. And and then again, as the defense attache from 0709. So I had the honor of being the last defense attache in that old embassy compound. Um, and I had, and, you know, and I had the privilege of, of explaining all of the history that had gone on in that building to the Tiananmen Square and, and, and all of the things that had happened in that old United States embassy to many of the young people who I was responsible for who really didn't know any knew know much about that, uh, and so we drove. We you know I I got to watch us uh, pull that flag down one more time, and that embassy also was not very far from the original American legation uh, in central Beijing. So there was a lot of history there, and so I got to be the last person there when they pull the flag down on the old United States embassy, that first embassy, and and when we moved to the new building. So it was a it was a fascinating time, and I look back on it with a great deal of uh, a big, great deal of pride um, in the accomplishments there, and and a great deal of a personal fulfillment in having been a part of history. To fast forward a few years, you were the director of the DSC from 2017 until 2020, that's just last year. And you've pointed out many times, and I think it's true, that the DSC is and its function is relatively unknown. Mm even in the policy space. And from the Caribbean perspective, that's pretty unfortunate because I think the DSCA has a pivotal role to play in U.S. policy extension in the Caribbean. So could you give us an overview of what DSCA is and does and why is it uh, important to have a well-functioning DSCA? That's a very good question. And I would tell you, so the Defense Security Cooperation Agency I like to joke it's the agency that does more and is, no, to your point, is known by fewer people than any other agency in Washington. And so it is, it is responsible 
uh, for the execution on behalf of the Department of Defense and the State Department of foreign military sales and security, security cooperation and security assistance worldwide. And so that includes a number of categories. That includes uh, what it's best known for or most famously known for, which is foreign military sales. That's the, the sales of defense articles, weapons, trucks, uh, these types of things, but also defense services, maintenance, administration, sustainment, supply. So defense articles and services, what we call institutional capacity building, which is uh, our efforts to work with the defense institutions of our allies and partners to assist them in developing uh, the capacity to, to more effectively uh, manage resources. Um, teaching about the law of land warfare, the law of armed conflict, uh, the advantages of military subordination to civil authority. And that one's very important. Um, so that institutional capacity building is, is one part of it. Another part of it is international military education and training. So we are the executive agent for all uh, foreign offices, officers from the Caribbean and other places that come to the United States to attend US military schools. Um, we're responsible for another very important program in the Caribbean, excess defense articles. That is uh, those defense articles and services that may not be of continued use or continued utility to the United States, but are perfectly functioning and serviceable and perhaps could be used uh, and provided in a grant in, in a grant capacity. In other words, uh, for free as is uh, to countries in the Caribbean or in other places in the world. And we call those, as I said, excess defense articles. We are also, DSCA is also responsible for um, humanitarian assistance funding and the management of humanitarian assistance funding. So for example, uh, if there are hurricanes and typhoon, well, hurricanes in the Caribbean, uh, and there's a declaration uh, on the request of the American ambassador that the area be declared an international disaster, it is DSCA that is the custodian and the manager of the funding that's provided uh, to our armed forces perhaps to assist uh, the citizens of the Caribbean in recovering from uh, some of the hurricanes and some of the natural disasters that happened down there. So it's an expansive agency, uh, about a thousand people in the headquarters in Washington and 20,000 people worldwide uh, who are who are responsible for take guidance from the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. So it's quite quite a large agency with a, a large responsibility and a large portfolio. You mentioned the natural disasters and hurricanes where DSCA steps in to help coordination. But I also want to point out the broader security cooperation aspects of DSCA and Caribbean, where, for example, Jamaica has a very high gang rate and policing problem where Jamaica is the third has the third highest homicide rate in the world. And narco-trafficking is a big issue in the Caribbean for decades now, which also connects back to Central America and South America um, as security problems. And even terrorism, where a few years ago, uh, Trinidad and Tobago had the highest per capita rate for ISIS recruitment in the Western Hemisphere. So the security problem in Caribbean is quite expansive and DSCS as a security corporation agency has a key, I think a key role to play in that but at the same time 
I don't see that much prominence given to security cooperation from the say, broader DOD agencies. So I read, for example, a paper by Professor Ellis at the U.S. Army War College where he pointed out kind of the same problem where he said that the coordination between NORTHCOM and SOUTHCOM when it comes to Western Hemisphere affairs is still seems to be given priority to military planning and not security cooperation. So suppose, what's your, why do you think that security cooperation is lacking or is given a lacking prominence in the DOD, at least in the LAC? Well, I think, I think we have to, first of all, look, I, I, uh, uh, I would be the first to say uh, that there are areas where we should place a, a bit more emphasis and, and we can always do better. Um, I think uh, we have to look at how the commands are organized and, and the fact that the Northern Command, uh, and, and it's this kind of division of responsibility between the Northern Command and the Southern Command, and you touched, you touched a, little bit upon, a little bit upon that. Um, uh, the Northern Command's principal responsibility is defense of the homeland, okay? And so in their, in their prioritization, uh, in their prioritization, those uh, challenges and threats to the homeland, uh, as well as those threats to our allies and partners in the Caribbean, are their first priority. And, and, and at the top of that list uh, has been for many years narco trafficking. Okay? Um, and so we, you know, all commands have a responsibility to prioritize their efforts. Uh, they don't have unlimited people. They don't have unlimited funding. And so I think there's been a tendency to focus on those most immediate threats to the homeland um, and, and the sources of those threats. In, in other words, narco trafficking, perhaps, perhaps at the expense of some other uh, collaborative activities. Although I would tell you that I think this, that uh, that has been the traditional approach. Although I would tell you, I think that that's changing. And in, in my experience, I've seen a, a bit more emphasis uh, from Northcom, uh, principally, but also from Southcom. You know, as you go further south in Latin America, but I've seen a bit more emphasis and focus on moving away from single issue, a single issue basis for collaboration and cooperation in the Caribbean, and moving more towards um, looking at more comprehensive ways to engage with our allies and partners uh, in the Caribbean. And before you ask me, I don't think it's solely uh, a response to Chinese uh, to Chinese encouraging because I know that question is coming. Um, I think it's I think it's more from uh, a, 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 the perspective that uh, people are starting to realize that that uh, we are all part of this collective hemisphere and distances are shrinking. Um, and I think there's a realization that uh, we should proactively. Uh, increase our engagement in the Caribbean with our Caribbean allies and partners, not because China's doing it, but because it's the right thing to do um, to, to further integrate our Caribbean allies and partners into a more comprehensive collective defense of the hemisphere. Uh, and I, I, I've seen that, I've seen that attitude and that approach increasingly, and I'm absolutely confident and optimistic um, that we're going to see increased funding along these lines and a, a change in approach that recognizes what I just pointed out. Um, and, and we'll act upon that and move forward with that perspective. And I've heard you mention on more than one occasion that 
in your view, there's a particularly unique American approach to security cooperation. What exactly is that approach? Great, great question. And the approach can be captured, the essence of the approach can be captured in a, in a single sentence. And that is um, that by strengthening the capabilities of our allies and partners via long-term relationships, we are by extension strengthening our own uh, defenses, our own security and our own capabilities. And I, that's a distinction, that, that's a characteristic that distinguishes us from the Russians and the Chinese. So the Russians and the Chinese, they will show up, they might even sell you weapons and they'll dump the weapons there. Um, they will certainly um, look around for any type of compensation to compensate them for the weapons. And it could be long-term leases on ports. It could be natural resources. It could be, I, I, I recall, uh, uh, and the Russians and the Chinese are very similar in this vein. And I recall a friend of mine in a country, I won't, I won't say which one, but they had formerly had closer relations with Russia and China um, and subsequently over the years uh, changed their orientation to the United States. And I remember him telling me that uh, uh, when the Russians and Chinese were in the country, you couldn't find an onion, okay? Because all of the, you know, and I mean, he was, he, was, he was kind of being half facetious, but his point was one of the deals they had made was uh, that they would export a large percentage of their agricultural uh, output for the year to Russia and to China. Uh, and so the, the people in that country couldn't even buy indigenously produced agricultural products because everything was for export to pay for guns, tank ships. So this uniquely American approach is we have these long-term relationships with our allies and partners. We build up their capacity to address common threats and common challenges um, because we know that's good for them and it's good for us. And, and the basis of that uh, is a long-term relationship with the countries that we engage with, um, as opposed to the more uh, episodic transactional approach of our strategic competitors. I've learned from you that the DSC has a pretty unique funding model relative to other government agencies in, in the U.S. I believe the DSC has a 3% surcharge That's on correct. foreign wep weapon sales. Do you know why exactly that particular model was chosen? Okay, no, good question. And that's because um, because uh, by virtue of the law, the Arms Export Control Act, which is the law that governs uh, the transfer of defense articles and services to uh, by the United States to foreign nations, foreign weapons cannot be sold at taxpayer expense. Okay, And so it cannot be that entire mechanism, that entire process cannot be conducted at taxpayer expense. Um, if we are going to sell these defense articles and services, the process will have to pay for itself. Okay, and so that was a decision. That was a decision that was made when the law was first promulgated. I believe '76 is the current version of the Arms Export Control Act that we're operating on, and that was a decision that was made. And so, because of that, a a surcharge is added to the cost of all defense articles and services to provide the, the, ad, the administrative funding uh, to, to, to fund the process. And that's the entire process. So DSCA provides funding uh, to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, everybody in all of the services that conducts security cooperation of foreign military sales is funded by this 3.2% surcharge. And I will tell you, uh, when I first arrived at DSCA, it was a 3.5% surcharge. 
Um, but we took a look at it. We wanted to make our defense articles and services more competitive. Uh, so we looked at our overhead administrative burden. We determined uh, that we could collect enough money to cover our overhead because there's no profit here. And I want to make that perfectly clear. The United States government is forbidden from making a profit. So there's no intent to profit here. No, 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 no. This is not for profit. You are, you are required only to ensure that you have sufficient funding to cover your administrative costs, okay? And that's, that's a very important point. And so you can't have too much. You can't have too little, obviously. But we don't want to have too much either. And so we, we did some, we ran some algorithms and looked at the math, and we determined that we could cover our administrative overhead by reducing the surcharge. And so we did. So I don't want you to, I, and I want to make this clear to everyone. There's no huge pot of money sitting somewhere that we've built up as a result of, of charging people a surcharge. That funding uh, is solely focused on the administration of the farm military sales process. Okay. Uh, and and it, it, it is carried over. And if there's too much, we lower the admin surcharge rate. Okay. We lower the evidence to, to bring things back into balance and to ensure we are not outside of the acceptable parameters of how much money you can have. So no, this is not a for-profit entity. It is a revenue-generating entity, but it is not for profit. Hmm. How how does the management of DSCA work in the big hierarchy of government? Does the DSCA work with Southcom to then get direction from Southcom, for example, or is there a mutually agreed upon policy plan and then the DSCA will execute on the policy? Like, where is the decision and direction coming from in the DSCA? This is very important to understand in the United States because this is a distinction. Uh, this, this, this is part of the uniquely American approach as well. Foreign military sales is a state department program. It is not a Department of Defense program, okay? It is a state department program. And it is ultimately the state department, not the defense department, that approves foreign military sales, okay? So in answer to your question, overall, the state depart- it is a state department program administered and executed by the defense department. Now, in, in excuse me, in the United States, DSCA works for the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, not for not for acquisition and sustainment, but for policy. Why? Because in the United States, a d- the decision to provide a country with defense articles or services is a policy decision that is that is uh, um, made as the result of a very deliberate an inclusive policy process that includes the executive office of the president, uh, that includes the National Security Council, that includes the Congress, very important role, oversight role played by the Congress. It includes the State Department. Uh, It can include the Department of Commerce, uh, as well as the Department of Defense. And so this process is not a for-profit process. And I would contrast that, for example, with in Russia, uh, there's an organization called Rosenboron Export. It works directly for the office in, in the Ministry of Defense for the office of President Putin. It's it does not answer to the the Russian Duma or the Russian Parliament. It does not answer to the Russian Foreign Ministry. It does not answer to anyone else 
uh, but the office of the president of Russia in the Ministry of Defense. It is its sole function is to operate as the executive agent for a for-profit uh, institution that sells arms, defense articles, arms, weapons in return for monetary uh, compensation. That's all Rosenborn Export does. Okay, that's what it does. It is a transactional organization. Similarly, in China. The Chinese military conglomerates, for example, North China Industries and some of the others, they are state-owned or state-subsidized entities whose sole function is to sell weapons for money. That's it. That's what they do. In the United States, this entire process is subject to intense scrutiny by the Congress, the State Department, the Office of the President, and many, many others. And so that's that's the difference in approach and what makes the, the US approach accountable, transparent, uh, virtually incorruptible and special. So funnily, I, a, few, a few years ago, I had a, uh, for various reasons, I had a tour of the Beifang Gongye, um, one of the factories in China. This, this, this is the, uh, what's the English, uh, Norenko the state-owned enterprise that does some military um, weapons uh, construction and sales. And they were, you know, pretty excited to mention the money-making ability of the weapons, but not necessarily the security enhancement ability. So it kind of goes to your point directly uh, from, I guess, my own first-hand experience. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you would, we, don't, we don't do that. Okay? That's why DSCA does not have customers. DSCA has partners, okay? And we never use the word customer. Now, we work with defense industries and they have customers, certainly. But DSCA does not have customers. We have allies and we have partners. Uh, and that's how we treat it. So it's very, very, very different models uh, for, for these three countries and these three organizations. Now, we've covered a lot of ground on security cooperation. I have some questions on your personal opinions on U.S. foreign policy in China, given your unique background. In the last four years especially, the U.S. has turned a much more aggressive posture towards China. At the expense of taking away a lot of policy energy from other theaters, in particular, in, in our case, the LAC. Do you think this is justified for the U.S. to put this much energy and this much focus on one country? Well, I, 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 the short answer to your question is regrettably, yes, I do. Um, when you consider uh, that China has become a preeminent, not the, but a preeminent uh, global economic power, there's no, that's undeniable. There's no question of that. Um when you consider the the impact that China is having globally uh, in the in the Caribbean, that's why we're having this conversation in Latin America, Europe, in Africa, uh, and and of course in in Asia. Uh, when you consider the extent to which the American economy and the Chinese economy are codependent in many ways, um, I think that this that this uh, may be, uh, and there are many who will argue the most important bilateral relationship of the 21st century. So no, it, it, is, it is called upon. When you consider, for example, the, the role that China played in the current global pandemic, 
Um, and this is not demonizing anybody. The simple fact of the matter is, is that the, is that the virus did originate in China. Um, and we still don't have the complete story uh, from the Chinese about how this all came about and how this took place. So yes, I, I think uh, regrettably it is um, a justifiable prioritized focus of the United States, um, but we're not the only ones. I would, I would argue that uh, the European Union, the European community, uh, Latin America and others are just as focused on their relationships with China uh, as the United States is focused on its relationship with China. And how do you interpret China's view of the U.S. and China's place in the world? And kind of ask that in context of the CCP Politburo Standing Committee, one of the members is Wang Huning, who I guess you could say is a noted America watcher. He wrote a book back in the 1980s, uh, 1980s, yes, called America Against America, and in it he discussed, you know, it's a Tocqueville-esque interpretation of the internal contradictions of the U.S. and so on. So there is some coherent view. Yes, right or wrong, but how do you interpret China's view of 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 the U.S.? Well, I think I think when you look at when you look at China, you look at a country that that has a long history. They have long memories. They they recognize that it it, it wasn't that long ago uh, where they were where China was emerging from uh, one hundred years of subjugation, one hundred years of chaos, uh, coming out of the Opium Wars in in the eighteen forties, all the way through the the quasi-colonial period of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and then literally almost 50 straight years of chaos and revolution culminating in 1949 and the establishment of the People's Republic of China. So they have this cathartic recent history, recent in Chinese terms. Um, and then they have, of course, the, the tumult after the communist revolution, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and now finally, uh, as a result of the efforts of, uh, of Deng Xiaoping and others, uh, China is emerging as this economic powerhouse, um, moving forward, finally um, uh, assuming what it would like to be its role in the world. Okay, uh, you spent time in China clearly, and, and so you know about Zhongguo and the Middle Kingdom and this self-perception that China can and should be uh, a significant power in the world. And so through their eyes, they, they, they see a world uh, established, a world order established after uh, Bretton Wood, after World War II, uh, where the United States is preeminent. There was a Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Clearly, the United States was ascendant uh, and triumphed in that. Um, and they see a world order where everybody is hierarchically placed and they're not particularly satisfied with their place in the hierarchical world order. Uh, they have aspirations for greater. Um, under Deng Xiaoping and the 24 character strategy, uh, they were they were cautioned to bide their time and hide their hide their uh, their strengths. Um, now under Xi Jinping, he's made it very clear that China has ascended. China has risen. They are no longer hiding their strengths, and of course. Uh, he's changed the laws now so that he can serve for life if he so chooses. Um, he has made it very clear that he has aspirations for China to be uh, the preeminent power, certainly in the Asia Indo-Pacific region, but also in the world. Uh, and he's even set a benchmark for that, 2049, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution. 
And so in their eyes, the, in the eyes of the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party, they see themselves as only assuming what they perceive to be their rightful role. The problem with that is, of course, is that in, you know, in, in friction points in places like the South China Sea, places like Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits, uh, and, and a number of other locations, um, their desire to assume what they perceive to be their rightful place is rubbing up against uh, a lot of the interest of a lot of other countries. Okay. Uh, it's rubbing up, you know, they talk about belt and road uh, as if there's only one belt and one road and all roads lead to Beijing. Uh, we know that in a global, in a globally networked economy, that's not necessarily true, but they certainly think so. So their worldview clearly is inconsistent with the worldview of some of the other powers in the world in the United States. And that's a source of friction. The question, so, and, and that's, that's neither insidious nor nefarious. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it is merely it, it is merely the result of an ascendant power rubbing up against the status quo power. The question we have to answer here is how that rivalry, how that competition will be managed so that it doesn't turn into conflict. Okay, and so that that's where we are with this right now. But that's my own Hooper's own perception of how the Chinese view the world. I don't agree with it. Um, and personally, um, I think the Chinese have taken and the Chinese government has taken some steps that perhaps have not presented them in the most favorable light. I, um, there was just a poll. I just saw another poll today, but the poll I'm most familiar with a couple months back, a Pew Research poll, indicated that 73 percent of all American adult, adults have a negative view of China, 73 percent. And I just saw a poll yesterday. Uh, I, I don't remember which uh, organization took the poll, where that percentage of Americans that have a negative view of China is even higher. Um, there are some that say, and you can see it on Twitter and other places, that this is a result of some Cold War, some plot in the United States to uh, to generate Cold War, Cold War thought towards China. But there are others that say, between unfair trade practices, dumping, uh, and a number, you know. Um, predatory financing of developing nations that China has created the conditions that is, have generated these negative perspectives. And so that's how I think China views itself. And these are some of the challenges, I think, with uh, how China views itself and how the rest of the world views China. Given the interwovenness of the U.S. and China economy, and at the same time, there is this perhaps irreconcilable difference when it comes to human rights in the U.S. and China. How do you see the Biden administration moving forward with their China policy, given that these differences perhaps cannot be reconciled, while at the same time they have to maintain their uh, interwovenness in the economy? Well, I think we've seen, we've, we've already seen the Biden administration take uh, some steps. First of all, uh, the Biden administration uh, and all of the senior leaders in it uh, Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, and others, um, uh, 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 Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Many of the uh, many of these leaders have already established that that uh, managing the relationship with China is very important. President Biden has already had a conversation with President Xi. Excuse me. They know each other very well um, from the time when when President uh, Xi was. Vice President Xi and President and, and uh, President Biden was Vice President Biden. 
They've already had their initial engagement. They've restated their views. And so I think there's been a clear indication that there's a desire on the part of the United States to, to, to manage the relationship, um, to make sure it doesn't morph into, into conflict, um, and that we address some of the outstanding issues in the relationship. By the same token, there's already been a clear indication uh, by the United States that, that they will respond vigorously uh, to, to perceptions of Chinese um, aggressive activities. Uh, they were, the Chinese military was flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone and, uh, and um, the United States responded uh, by having freedom of navigation operations in the Taiwan Straits, as well as uh, some, uh, some exercises in the South China Sea. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll attempt to manage this relationship as peacefully as possible. It's to the advantage of both countries. But I think, uh, um, uh, I think the Biden administration has clearly indicated that, uh, that they place importance on this relationship, all aspects of it, um, and that they will move forward with a whole of government comprehensive administration approach. Uh, I point out that, uh, as you may know, and as your listeners may know, uh, there, a China task force has been established at the Pentagon, uh, and everybody's paid a great deal of attention to that. But one of the things that I'd like to point out is that, um, and it's, it, it is in the public release describing the work of the Pentagon task force, it talks about the fact that the Pentagon task force will not only take a look at the military aspect of the relationship, but also take a look at the economic, diplomatic, and political aspects of the relationship to ensure that there is uh, a whole that that the priorities that are acknowledged or identified take into account all of the aspects of the relationship and not only one of them. Uh, and similarly, at the State Department, um, they're going to have to take a look at the military aspects of it. Commerce and the U.S. Trade Representative are going to have to take a look at at both the military or security relationship as well as the diplomatic. And so, I think there'll be an effort on the part of the United States to have a much more comprehensive, integrated approach to U.S.-China relations, as opposed to stovepiped approaches, um, uh, perhaps that, that we've engaged in in the past. So without doubt, you would be considered the pinnacle of what a soldier diplomat or a soldier scholar would be. And I had a previous conversation with an uh, ambassador, and he said he cautioned the weight people put on more academic interpretations of foreign policy. So I'm wondering, how much weight do you put on the need for academic readings relative to less and more practical, pragmatic understandings of how policy actually works on the ground? Well, I think that I think that any perspective of China has to be informed by both practical firsthand experience as well as a comprehensive review of, of the current thinking uh, on the U.S.-China relationship. As you know, it, it covers a wide spectrum of thoughts, everything from those who are more, who advocate a more aggressive, hostile approach to those who emphasize a more conciliatory approach. My, I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you from my perspective, um, uh, I think I, I've always been a pragmatist, and so I've always looked at uh, the entire full spectrum of thought on this process, uh, and then married that with my own practical personal experiences uh, to determine on a case-by-case basis uh, what is, how we would approach or how I would opinionate or how I would form my own thoughts on, on each particular issue. There is no black and white. There is no, uh, 
uh, only one way to do things and other ways to do things. Um, my, many of these issues are enormously complex um, and intertwined. Uh, and so for my own opinion, I've never been an advocate of taking a, a unilateral, all-encompassing approach one way or the other, or even ideological. I'm not, you know, I, that's not my opinion. I, my approach has always been one of pragmatism, one of careful consideration and deliberation of all of the factors surrounding a particular issue with an eye towards uh, determining an optimal practical way forward, absent ideology, absent emotion, uh, that will result in the, the highest probability of a positive outcome, uh, uh, a policy decision that will, uh, that will result in the optimal conditions for an optimal outcome that will benefit the United States. So pragmatism, uh, a reasonable approach, free of ideology, free of rhetoric, free of emotions, free of judgment, uh, in, in other words, free of uh, stereotypes or these other things that tend to color our perceptions. Uh, and that's always been my approach. Thank you so much, General Hooper. This has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I hope your listeners do. And thanks very much for reaching out. And wherever you are, look, stay safe and stay healthy. Everybody.